All right, Bismillah. Inshallah, we'll start. So, welcome to Faith uh, Quran Study, the chapter of the cave. Um, Alhamdulillah, uh, given you know the situation, we've decided to start a secondary uh, weekly series, uh, of course, with our beloved Sheikh Ahmed Khalil. And uh, Inshallah, the program you know for this one will be more focused on the Quran and kind of developing our personal relationship with the Quran wherever our current relationship may be. Um, and we're using a surah that's you know very well. Um, very well known very well referred to and of course it's something that the scholars uh have recommended based on our tradition to you know recite every single week uh in particular friday so we just had our friday complete um and that is of course the 18th surah of the quran which is uh, surah kahaf uh the cave and inshallah you know um throughout this journey that we're taking essentially we'll be going through the the and i'm sure Sheikh ahmed will um elaborate further on this Inshallah, the goal is to kind of, you know, journey throughout the surah and extrapolate the benefits from the various uh, lessons and the various stories that are going to be, uh, that are uh, provided in the surah by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and kind of benefiting from that. And of course, uh, making it practical as always, making it relatable to our lives and how we can, you know, further benefit with that. Uh, before we start, I just want to make a quick announcement. I'm sure you guys have probably seen it um, in on Instagram and Facebook. And Sheikh Haseeb actually shared it earlier in the community chat. But however, um, Alhamdulillah, we're starting, not we, um, rather faith globally. Um, so the various chapters of faith um, um, kind of got together. And inshallah, this Sunday, we are, we'll be having a live conference. So the conference is going to be um, hosted on Facebook. So if you, and I'll share all the links below once um, I'm done speaking in the chat. But basically, it'll be happening at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, the purpose of the conference is to kind of have the teachers of the various faith um, chapters. So from Faith London, from Faith Austin, from Faith San Diego, from, of course, Faith Ottawa. Um, I think I'm missing probably one more. Faith New York as well, of course, as well as Sheikh Haseeb. And uh, we'll be speaking. And we'll also be having two uh, special guests from Roots from uh, Dallas, Ustad Abrahman Murphy, and I believe uh, Ustad, uh, I need to check her name one more time, but um, it is Ustad Fatima Let. Um, yes, thank you, Adam. So uh, Alhamdulillah, so those are our two special guests from Roots, um, accompanied with the rest of the speakers, our teachers from the different chapters of faith. And inshallah, they'll be going um, through the different uh, characters that are mentioned in our tradition. Of course, the Prophet Sheikh Asib will be handling um, and discussing about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And um, the other speakers will be talking about other various, you know, important figures, prophets, and uh, imp uh, important female role models from our tradition and what we can learn from them when it comes to the concept of hope and adversity. Because if the best of you know best of humanity have faced these uh, these not these types of challenges, these types of adversities uh, from different spectrums, um, then we too, inshallah, we should be able to le learn the lessons from their uh, life and try to implement it ourselves. So inshallah, that's the goal. We'll be you know we'll be having it on our uh, so we'll be marketing it rather on our Instagram as well, of course, Instagram and Facebook right after this uh, event finishes. But inshallah, once again, that is happening. Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern, it'll be available uh, to join. 
by uh, Facebook Live. Um, you'll be able to, so that's where we'll, inshallah we'll post it. And it's not on our Facebook uh, in particular, although we'll share it, but it's actually happening at the Faith Space Global uh, Facebook page. So inshallah, once I'm done talking, as I mentioned, I'm, I'll post all the information in the chat so you guys can look into that. And if you haven't had the chance to already join our Telegram group, that's where we do uh, our primary communication. Um, I'll share a link to that as well. So inshallah, without further ado, uh, Sheikh Ahmed, would you kindly take it away? All right, assalamu alaikum. Walaikum assalam. Okay, I have the camera up and running this time, so um, just uh, for changing things around a little bit. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Salatu Muhammad wa everybody for being here. We also want to accept the time that you spare for his sake. It is uh, truly a great sacrifice to dedicate time off your busy schedules where you could be doing a zillion other things. Okay, maybe it's not a zillion this time, um, but it's still a lot of things that you could be doing that you've sacrificed for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to gather tonight for the sake of Allah, to reflect, you know, just a little bit on a few verses from the Quran, specifically Surah Al-Kahf chapter of the cave, a beautiful chapter in the Qur'an that we'll be touching upon today, inshallah. And jazakallah khair al-Zaheen for the announcement. So yeah, I look forward to it. I think it's going to be a great session on Sunday, inshallah, at 6 p.m., where we talk about different aspects and how different righteous people in our history actually were able to withstand and face off against different challenges that they faced. So that really is the primary focus to learn from them, inshallah. All right, without further ado, let's dive in into Surah Al-Kahf. Surah Al-Kahf is an interesting surah, one actually that is singled out by the Prophet to do um, or to be read and to be recited and to be reflected upon every week, right? And so you, you don't often find such singling out of surahs, right? Like, you know, okay, there are recommendations, of course, to recite the Qur'an, to read the Qur'an, and there are other recommendations for other, other surahs and other verses in the Qur'an as well. But this one, to be kind of consistently read and consistently reflected upon, that's sort of kaf. There isn't anything else like that that has that consistency in terms of its singling out. So we'll touch upon a few ahadith that kind of highlight that. Where did the Prophet actually say that, right? And then we'll touch upon why. Before we do that, though, um, it's important to highlight why are we doing a Qur'an study? Why are we studying the Qur'an? Why reflecting on the Qur'an? And, um, you know, we can perhaps talk for hours just about that topic alone, right? The idea of studying the Qur'an, what's the purpose of it, and why do we study the Qur'an? But I'm just going to share a few reflections on that. Um, specifically, a verse in the Qur'an in Surah Sad, a very interesting surah, and a very interesting verse. And the verse goes as follows. Which really translates to a book that we have sent down. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent down this book, and it is a blessed book, right? Different translations um, use the phrase full of blessings, right? So sometimes it's full of blessings, and sometimes it is a blessed book, right? Um, one major translation that I'll kind of rely on is an interesting one and modern and doesn't have, you know, archaic English and written actually recently. It's called the Clear Quran. And it was pioneered by Sheikh Mustafa Khattab and a group of Shiuch actually. So they kind of, you know, partnered together and worked on it together. And you know, some of the brothers that, you know, actually worked on, on the project. And I know Sheikh Mustafa Khattab himself actually got the blessed opportunity of meeting him uh, a few years back uh, and spending Ramadan with him actually. And so the, um, 
translation goes as follows. This is a blessed book, which we have revealed to you, O Prophet, so that they may contemplate its verses. And people of reason may be mindful. And people of reason may be mindful. And so this verse really highlights why this book has been revealed to us. Why do we have the Quran? Why have the, the, you know, the wahi, the revelation in the form of the Quran, in the form of um, verses that are um, in a way poetic in their, in their eloquence and their, in their power. And then they flow with each other. And then they've been collected together by the Sahaba and by the Prophet and in the form of a book, in the form of the Quran. Why do we have it in the form of a book? Why? Because we're actually required to reflect upon its meanings, to contemplate, to reflect upon it and study it, to understand it, right? And so there's immense reward in reading the Qur'an, reciting the Qur'an, memorizing the Qur'an for sure, right? There's immense reward in that, but it is very much a lacking understanding to simply limit ourselves to just that, to simply limit ourselves to recitation or to even applying the rules of the dreed or to even memorize it without understanding it without pondering its meanings, right? So the word liyadabbaru here is a very interesting word used by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to highlight that the level of understanding is very deep. Tadbir is to actually, you know, kind of deduce lessons and morals that you adopt and apply in your lives that you can use and actually adopt. And, and you kind of, you know, it's not just a lesson that, you know, oh, that's a great lesson or a great moral. No, but you actually adopt it and use it, right? And so... You know, usually we say um, in Arabic, the word dabbar al-amr, meaning that he or she planned their affairs, right? They planned their matters. Um, you know, how we plan our careers, how we plan our lives, how we plan everything really whenever it comes to anything in life. It is, of course, a, a good thing to plan for it, right? And so the word dabbara is used, which means to plan. And so from that same root, the word liyadabbaru, so that they may contemplate so that they may use it to plan their lives and govern their lives and apply it in their lives and adopt it in their lives. All right. So read, understand, reflect on the Quran, internalize the Quran, truly digest it, adopt its meanings and lessons and morals and principles and live by them, live by them. Right. The Prophet is described by Aisha. She says about him, he was a walking manifestation of the Quran. Right. Why? Because he internalized the Quran. It wasn't just you know, a few verses and he had memorized and he can recite by heart. No, it was more than that. It was deeper than that. His life exemplified the Quran. He lived by it. And so that's what's required here. That's why we're studying the Quran, right? Um, and then the verse kind of concludes by saying, and the people of reason, those that are reasonable, will be mindful of this, right? Will truly be mindful of this book. Will be, will take care of it. In another uh, translation, it says, and the people of understanding may reflect Right. And in another translation, it says those of understanding would be reminded. Right. So it's a reminder for those of understanding. And hopefully we are, inshallah, people of reason and people of understanding and people of logic. And also another translation says that the men or the people of understanding may receive admonition, admonition. Right. And another says that those of understanding would take heed take heed. And so if you notice, what we're trying to do here is we're also kind of comparing different translations of the Quran, right? And I can mention these different translations to you. And so that's what we'll try to do as well. When we reflect on the Quran, we'll also kind of look at the different translations as well to kind of compare them and see what do the different translators say? How did they understand these verses and what words did they use to explain the concepts or the words that are used in the Quran? 
Now, an interesting description given of the Quran in this verse is the word Mubarak, right? And of course, it's not referring to the, you know, the, um, um, you know, the dictator, uh, president, uh, ex-president of Egypt that just passed away. I'm not referring to him. It's referring to the idea of being a blessed book, a blessed book, right? And so, what does the word Mubarak mean? It's actually used to describe the Quran in two other verses as well, right? And those two other verses are in Surah Al-An'am, Surah Al-An'am. And so it touches upon that a little bit. And it says um, in Surah Al-An'am that it is a book that we have revealed that is blessed or full of blessings, right? The same kind of wording is used. And in another verse, as well, right? And then it kind of elaborates a little bit more, right? So in one verse, it says, Right? What does that mean? Translates to that, and again, relying primarily on Mustafa Khattab's The Queer Quran, which you can find online. And it goes as follows This is a blessed book which we have revealed, confirming that which has come before it, so that you may warn the mother of cities, Umm al Qura. An interesting description. And some scholars say this is referring to Mecca and everyone around it, right? That means the whole world. Those who believe in the hereafter truly believe in it and guard their prayers. They watch for their prayers and are watchful for their prayers. So there, that is one translate, one um, verse that highlights the blessedness of the book, right? And in another, also in Surah Al-An'am, it goes as follows. Which translates to, this is a blessed book that we have revealed, so follow it and be mindful of Allah, so you may be shown mercy, so that you may be shown mercy. So the idea of the book being blessed, the Qur'an being blessed, is associated with a few things. One here in this case, mercy and taqwa, being mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having piety, being aware and conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, being watchful of everything that we do and, and everything that we say. Right, that is pretty much what taqwa is about. Actually, scholars define taqwa and they say, "And that Allah would find you where He commanded you to be, and does not find you where He forbade you from being." Right, so that's taqwa. And so, in this verse, the word kitab, which is the book, and mubarak, blessed, is associated with these two concepts: taqwa and rahma, the mercy and taqwa, but also the command follow it, adopt it. Hold it dearly to your heart. Live by it, right? Digest it, internalize it, understand it, right? comes from the idea of the word ittiba'a, which is a word that we actually kind of talked about a little bit at faith uh, in one of the sessions where we talked about ittiba'a Rasul to emulate, to follow, to walk in the footsteps, to follow the footsteps, to live by and in the way that the Prophet lived. That's mutaba'a Rasul, right? To follow the Prophet and here it says, follow the Qur'an, live by the Qur'an, live by this blessed book. In the other verse, um, it, ta- it associates again the kitab, Mubarak, which means the book, which is blessed, with the idea that it actually confirms what has been revealed to humanity before the Qur'an, right? In different revelations that were received by different prophets before the Prophet And then it says, It is sent to you, O Muhammad, so that you warn the mother of cities, meaning Mecca, and the world around it, woman hawlaha, right? And then it says, and those that believe in the Day of Judgment, they believe in it. They believe in this book. They believe in the Quran, 
but they don't just believe, right? They don't just believe in the Day of Judgment. They don't just believe in the book. They also uphold their prayers. They uphold their prayers. They maintain their prayers. They're very steadfast when it comes to their prayers, no matter what. They're keen on praying on time and praying truly with focus, with heart, with presence of it towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that was just a brief intro into, you know, the Qur'an and why we're talking about the Qur'an and why are we studying the Qur'an really? It's because we want to adopt it in our lives, right? It's not just a book that we gain blessings from. And unfortunately, many people have reduced the Qur'an to just that, right? A, a you know, kind of like a talisman, a good luck charm, right? They've printed like really small versions of it that are really this tiny and, 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 you know, they put it around themselves in a necklace or around their necks or in a necklace. And, and they think that that would protect them, that would give them some kind of protection. Or some people, unfortunately, would play the Qur'an, like, you know, beautiful recitation in the background, right? While they're going about their business and they just have it playing in the background. Why? Because it will give barakah and blessings to, you know, the house or to the office or to wherever you happen to be, right? Or, um, you know, having the talisman, the charm, the good luck charm around your neck will protect you from, you know, harm or evil. But all of that, subhanAllah, is superstition, right? All of that is superstition. There is a hadith that says that the house wherein the Qur'an is recited, and specifically Surah Al-Baqarah is recited, then that would kick off or kick away the shayateen from that house, right? There's a hadith that says that. But no scholar ever interpreted that hadith to say that just playing it in the background, right? Because that's not the point. And in another verse, Allah subhanahu wa tells us, If the Qur'an is being recited upon you or being read to you, then listen to it and ponder, right? Don't just listen, but listen and ponder and reflect and try to understand, right? Don't just, you know, um, chill and go about your life as if nothing is going on. It's just some black background noise, right? To gain some reward um, that is kind of imaginary. Um, but that is not to say that there is no barakah or blessings in the Qur'an. There definitely is, right? But the primary source of that or to attain that blessing is to actually understand it, right? And to focus on it and to reflect upon it and to learn from it. All right, so that is why we are studying the Qur'an. That's why we're reflecting on the Qur'an. That's why it's important to do just that and spend some time doing just that. Now, why Surah Al-Kahf? And we mentioned because there are many actually ahadith that touch upon, and what is a hadith? It's a saying of the Prophet where he reflects upon this surah specifically. He singles it out, right? He singles it out from all the other surahs in the Qur'an, right? He singles this one out. And um, it's an interesting surah. It's, uh, it has a um, majority of it is stories, and we'll touch upon kind of the construction of the surah in a bit. But one interesting hadith narrated in Al-Hakim, where the Prophet is reported to have said, um, which translates to, whoever reads Surah Al-Kahf, whoever reads Surah Al-Kahf on Friday, then his or her week will be lit up between the two Fridays, right? So that's one hadith, and, and it's considered a sahih hadith in terms of his authenticity. A hadith of the Prophet sayings of the Prophet have different categories in terms of their level of authenticity. And those that have attended um, my 40 Nawawi hadith session, they know that I kind of hammer this in every time where I talk about how hadith have different levels. The strong, the sahih, the mediocre, the hasan, and then the da'if, the weak, right? And in between them, there are also levels. So there's, you know, da'if, hasan, or hasan, da'if, and then there's hasan, uh, sahih, right? So there's, you know, between them, there's also, you know, these different categorizations. This is done by scholars to identify what is a weak hadith 
And what is a medium in terms of its authenticity? And what is a strong hadith? What does that mean? It means that you can say for, you know, as best as you can, um, that a strong hadith has something that was actually said and done by the Prophet. Hadith, by the way, are not just sayings, they also describe actions of the Prophet. Right? or even in action, where something happened in front of him and he did not say or do anything, but he was there and he was quiet about it. So these are the types of hadith that are out there. All right, so hadith are sayings of the Prophet passed on to us by the Sahaba. A Sahaba heard it, learned it, memorized it, and then said to others that I heard the Prophet say such and such, right? And then some other person would say, I heard that Sahabi say that he heard the Prophet say such and such. And the chain goes on until somebody actually decided to write it down and collect it in a book. And so there are actually numerous of collections of the hadith, right? There's Muwatta Malik, Sahih Bukhari, Sahih Muslim, Muslim Imam Ahmad. Um, uh, there's uh, Muslim Tirmidhi, there is, you know, Sunan Tirmidhi, Sunan Nisa'i. So there are many different books of the hadith different by, written by different scholars that have collected a hadith over time. And there are thousands of hadith, thousands of hadith. And again, they vary in terms of authenticity based on the chain of narration. Who are the people in that chain? Are they people that are you know righteous, that have good reputation? Or is it somebody that may have lied at one point in time or may not necessarily have a good reputation in that chain of narration? That actually contributes towards the level of authenticity of the hadith. And then there's also the idea that the metan, the content of the hadith, is it in line with the Qur'an or does it go against it? Is it in line with other hadith that is known to be authentic or is it against it, right? So the content also matters. You know, when you spend some time with somebody for, you know, say a weekend, by the end of the weekend, you kind of understand their vocabulary, the words that they use, right? And so if they talk differently, you kind of recognize something is off and you kind of ask them, what's wrong? You, you, something's strange, you're, you're, you're using different words, you know, something's wrong, right? Are you okay? And so, likewise, the Prophet is known to use specific vocabulary and specific style of speech. All of that kind of contributes in terms of identifying how the Prophet used to speak, what words he would generally use, right? And so all of that is used to help us in identifying what is a sahih hadith, what is a weak hadith, and what is a medium hadith. This is called ilm al-hadith, the knowledge or the science of hadith. I just summarized it briefly for you, so that when we come to say if a hadith is weak or a hadith is strong, you kind of understand what we're talking about. All right, another hadith that is authentic is uh, a one narrated in Sahih Muslim, where the Prophet has said, "Man min al-Dajjal," which translates to that whoever memorizes the first ten verses of Surah Al-Kaf, they will be protected from al-Dajjal from the Dajjal. What is the Dajjal? It's a large topic that we can talk about one day, inshallah. But we'll actually do, you know, kind of try to address it here, not today, but in another session, inshallah, when we talk about Dhilqarni, the man with the two horns. And so that will be on another day, inshallah. But the Dajjal is pretty much somebody that claims to be a messenger, that claims to be linked to the divine and will have and garner and gather a large gathering and a large following. And he will lie to people and cheat people and deceive people. And that is why he's called the Dajjal, which translates to the deceiver, right? The deceiver. And in, you know, kind of the Christian um, thoughts or, or, you know, theology, they call him the Antichrist, right? But basically, it's a person that it will show up later on and will actually deceive people and, and gather a large following because of his deception. But protection from him is achieved by reciting Surah Al-Kahf. Surah Al-Kahf, from his deception, that is. 
and by memorizing the first 10 verses according to this hadith. There are many other hadith, by the way, that also highlight the importance of Surah Al-Kaf, and many of them are weak hadith, right? I didn't actually mention any today, but there are many, right? So this is why we're studying Surah Al-Kaf and reflecting on it. The hadith that are weak, by the way, can they be used at all? Like, are we supposed to say, oh, it's a weak hadith and kind of not use them at all and, and discard them and ignore them and set them aside? Well, the answer is it depends on what you're using it for, right? So a sahih hadith and the Qur'an are used primarily to identify two things. What is halal? What is haram? So if a hadith says that is sahih, that says this is halal and this is haram, we are to take it, right? If the Qur'an says, of course, this is halal and this is haram, we are to take it. These two sources allow us to identify what is halal and what is haram, what is forbidden by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what is allowed and permissible by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So halal and haram from these two sources primarily. And then, then um, the other thing is the unseen. All of the things that are related to the unseen, the day of judgment, how does it look like, what will happen on that day, um, you know, how will people be resurrected, how will people receive, you know, their accounts, all of that, descriptions of the day of judgment, even descriptions of the last hour, which is still in life, but it's like the few minutes before the actual day of judgment. Those are all unseen. Even descriptions of angels, descriptions of the shaitan, descriptions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of that is considered al-ghaybiyyat, the unseen. Can we rely on weak hadith for that? The answer is no. We should only rely on, again, the Qur'an, primary source, and the secondary source, the sahih hadith, the hadith that are strong in authenticity when it comes to the unseen, right? When it comes to weak hadith, however, we can rely on them when it comes to um, matters of good ethics, good behavior. If a hadith tells you, be a good person, Right, that is a weak hadith, that's fine, we can still use it, we can still quote it, we can still pass it around, right? Also, when it comes to encouraging any kind of good behavior, such as reflecting on a surah, even if it's a specific surah like Surah Al-Kah, we can rely on those hadith, right? And so if a hadith happens to be weak, but it still encourages good behavior, we can rely on that, we can quote it and use it. If a weak hadith, however, tells you that something's haram and something's halal, and there is no other reference, like no verse in the Quran, no Sahih Hadith, then it becomes an issue that is, con, you know, of contention a little bit. And most scholars say we don't use weak Hadith to define halal and haram. All right, back to Surah Al-Kaf. Um, and in like you know three four minutes, I'll open the floor for questions, inshallah, before we kind of continue and comments. But before we do that. About Surah Al-Kaf, Surah Al-Kaf has 110 verses, 110 verses. 71 of them are actually stories. 71 of these 110 are stories. The remaining 39 are actually um, commentary on those stories, commentary on those stories, and um, scenes from the hereafter. And remember we said we can definitely rely on the Qur'an as a source for what is happening in the hereafter. Then, you know, that's some verses that will come across, inshallah, in Surah Al-Kaf that does just that. And there are four main stories. Some scholars say they're just three. It depends on how they categorize the stories, right? But there are four main stories. And then there are, um, you know, kind of two smaller stories, right? Or scenes, if you like. Not a full-on story, but a scene, right? And so the four main stories are the youth of the cave. That's story number one. Story number two is the owner of the two gardens. Story number three is Musa and a righteous man known as Al-Khidr. And story number four is the man with the two horns, Vilqarnain, right? These are the four main stories. And then there's the story of Iblis, you know, Satan, and, and how he disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
and it's just a scene really it's not a full-on story the scene from that story right it's also mentioned in Sultan Kef, and it's actually in the middle between you know the first uh, two and the last two stories. It's mentioned in the middle, and um, that's it really. Those are the seventy-one verses. Thirty-nine is commentary. It is a Meccan surah, meaning it was revealed before the Hijrah of the Prophet Right. So the Quran was actually revealed over a period of prophethood. Prophet Ali Muhammad received revelation at the age of forty, and then he passed away at the age of 63. 23 years, the Quran has been revealed in small portions, small verses, right? Collections of verses, small surah, right? But it wasn't revealed all at once. It was revealed over a span of 23 years. The first 13 years was when the Prophet was still in Mecca, alayhi salatu wasalam, and of course he faced a lot of hardship there, but those 13 years is where two-thirds of the Quran was revealed. Two-thirds of the Quran were revealed. And then when he migrated to Al-Medina, because of the persecution and attempts on his life. And then in Medina, he established the society and established the Ummah and established, you know, full on, uh, if you like, small country. That's what he established in Medina, alayhi salatu wasalam. That's when, over the next 10 years, that one third of the Quran was revealed. The difference between the Meccan and the Medini phase, which is how scholars categorize surahs in the Quran, they say this is a Meccan surah or a Medini surah. What does that mean? What is that even significant for us? It actually, the difference is, in the how the verses and what the topics are that are addressed by these verses. So when it comes to the Meccan surahs, they're talking about aqidah, which is the set of beliefs that we should believe as Muslims, as believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in, as followers of the Prophet right? And then it talks about also some of the ghaybiyat, some of the unseen matters, like the Day of Judgment, what's going to happen there, right? How are we going to be held to account? The idea of accountability, right? Hellfire, Jannah, right? So paradise and Jannah, these are things that are addressed primarily in the you know, first two-thirds of the Qur'an that was revealed. Not the first two-thirds in the Qur'an that we have today, because you know, the Sahab actually kind of are, most scholars agree that the order of the surahs in the Qur'an was basically based on size, the larger being in the first, the, you know, after Surah Al-Fatiha, the opening. And then the uh, surahs were kind of set in order based on size. Many scholars believe that this was actually ishtihad by the Sahaba, that the Sahaba were the ones, the companions of the Prophet were the ones that put this order in place. Um, but there are some narrations, although they're weak, that this order was set by the lost Prophet at the time when the Prophet was still alive. But anyway, so the first two-thirds of Quran in terms of revelation was revealed in Mecca, and it covered the topics of Al-Qaeda, Hellfire, Jannah, Day of Judgment, matters of the unseen like that. The second portion, which is the last third of the Qur'an being revealed over the next 10 years before the Prophet passed away in Medina, that was actually covering legislature. That is where the Sharia mostly is. That's where the do's and don'ts are, right? That's where you have to do this and you have to do that, and you cannot do this and you cannot do that, right? And so legislation, law, Sharia, is in that third, the last third of the Quran that was revealed over a span of 10 years. So Surah Al-Kah does not have legislature. It does not have, you know, do's and don'ts. It mostly is, like all Meccan surahs, about what? About Aqidah, about our belief system, about the Day of Judgment, and about Hellfire, about Jannah, but covers a variety of topics that we'll touch upon briefly today, inshallah. All right, with that, we'll open the floor for any comments or questions before we kind of continue. Or any thoughts or any additions that people want to add?
Anybody have any comments or thoughts? No? I can continue if you want, or I can hear from you, inshallah. All right, I'll continue, inshallah. Let's see. All right. Before we again dive in into the surah, one interesting concept that's kind of important to highlight is that Islam and and the Quran is actually not just um, you know um, it's not just you know a, a set of principles and um, addressing the unseen and the aqidah and set of beliefs and legislation. There's also another aspect to it, and that is what is called the methodology. The methodology. Right, so there's a very interesting verse in Surah Al-Maidah that goes as follows. It says in this in this verse, it says, minkum wa which translates to, for each and every one of you, we have actually made shiratan, which translates to code of law, wa which means a way of life or methodology in how to go about your life, how to live your lives, how to go about your lives. Okay, what's the difference between the two? What's the difference between the shara and the minhaj? What's the difference between the code of life and you know a way of life, as the translation goes, or and or a code of law and the way of life? What's the difference between the two? Well, we'll, we'll give some examples to highlight that. So there's an interesting story that happened at the time of the Prophet when he was performing Hajjatul Wada'a, the last pilgrimage, that what's called the farewell pilgrimage, where he gave the farewell speech, where he kind of addressed all of the believers in Mecca. And it was the last time that he did this, and then he traveled back to Medina. In that last Hajj, an incident happened, an interesting incident, where he was, um, he had a partner with him, right, riding on the same ride that he had, and probably it was a camel. He had somebody riding behind him. That person riding behind him was his cousin, Al-Fadl ibn al-Abbas. Al-Fadl ibn al-Abbas is, he was at the time maybe 13, 14, maybe 15, Right, years old. So he was a young, young, a young dude. You could perhaps even say a child. And he actually was riding behind the Prophet And then a woman comes and she asks the Prophet a question. She's actually looking for what we would call today a fatwa, right? A decree on a matter, uh, you know, guidance on something. So she's asking him a question. And the woman is described in the hadith. And by the way, this hadith exists in many different narrations and many different books of, of, of uh, hadith. And so most scholars say that it is, you know, uh, sahih hadith. And so she described as hasnet, meaning she was pretty. Okay, so this pretty woman came and, you know, that's it. That's all the description we have. We don't know what does that mean? Was she wearing hijab, not wearing hijab, wearing niqab, not wearing niqab? Um, you know, what does that mean? Was her eyes pretty? Was, was you know, we don't know. Right, so don't so don't kind of you know uh, fall into speculation as some people have, unfortunately. And so, but point is, she was described as pretty, and the Fadl Abbas was described to have been looking at her. He was looking at her, and the Prophet actually, what does he do? He he turns to Al Fadl and he holds him by the chin and he turns him around. Right, so he holds him and, he, and he's like you know forcing him to kind of look the other way. Right, um, basically telling him without actually using any words lower your gaze, bro, right? Like, like don't, don't stare. And so that's something the Prophet does to Al-Fadl ibn Abbas, who was, who was only 15 at the time. Al-Fadl ibn Abbas actually dies as a shaheed um, around eight years after the passing away of the Prophet. So in the year 18 Hijri is when Al-Fadl ibn Abbas passes away. He dies as a shaheed in one of the battles. 
And, you know, the skull is different which battle exactly, but the point is he died as a shaheed in one of those battles, and it was in the year 18 Hijri. And subhanAllah, um, he has brothers. His brother is perhaps more famous, Abdullah ibn Abbas, right? Abdullah ibn Abbas is more famous because he grew to be a scholar of tafsir, right? And so he's the brother of Abdullah ibn Abbas al-Fadl. And he was the one that his, had his chin turned around. Now, why am I mentioning this? Uh, really, it has nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's just part of the hadith, right? But what we're talking about is the question that was asked by this sahabiyah, by this um, sister in Islam. What was she asking? What was her question? Her question was about her father. She says that my father is an old man and cannot actually ride, right? So it's, for him, it's very difficult to ride on something. And as such, he can't travel. Right, because to travel you had to ride on a, on a mule or a camel or a horse or what have you. He couldn't because he's so old, and so he can't travel. So she's asking, he can't perform Hajj. So she's asking, can I perform Hajj on his behalf? Right, that's that's her question. And the Prophet then says, yes. And that was it. That's the answer to the to the question. That's the decree right then and there. Can can children perform Hajj on behalf of their parents if their parents are unable to? The answer is yes. You can take it in a, in a general way that it applies to everybody. It also applies to this woman here and her her situation. So that is what is called shira, meaning legislation, decree, right? A decision, a decree, a matter that is you know kind of specific, a ruling, if you like. But then Ali he elaborates. And he gives what is known as the minhaj, the methodology with which he reached such a decision, right? So he says, which translates to, if he had debt to pay, if he had, if he owed people money, then you would be responsible for it, right? And that's it. That's the hadith. Concludes there, ends there. Scholars reflect on this hadith and they say that when he says this, he's not just giving the, the decree, which is the word yes, right? That yeah, you can, um, you know, kind of, perform hajj on behalf of your father. That's one thing. But also, he gives the methodology that just like if he were to owe people money, you would be the one responsible to pay that money back. Likewise, if he is unable to perform hajj, then he still owes it. And as such, you are the one that you can actually, you know, kind of do it on his behalf. So anyway, so that is the difference between methodology and... Um, you know, the decree, right? Decree and methodology, difference between legislature or decree and methodology. Another interesting example is in Surah Al-Ma'idah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, which means uphold justice. It is closest to taqwa, to piety, right? And we talked about taqwa is, we mentioned it briefly. And so means hold justice, uphold justice, be firm in justice. But then that's the decree. How do you do that? How do you uphold justice, right? That's a question that we should ask. What is the methodology to attain justice? And so in another verse, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet, consult them in the matter. All matters of state, of governorship, are under shura and consultation, right? And so that is in Ali Amran. So that's another example of the difference between methodology and decree slash legislation. Another example is um, again the difference between the two. Legislation could be, or legislature, is um, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is talking about, you know, wudu and tayammum, and He says, okay, if you don't find water, then perform tayammum, right? You don't find, um, you know, water. You don't have access to water, and you want to pray. You can actually perform what is called tayammum, where you use, you know, dust and you kind of use it and it will be accepted, right? 
So that's legislature. That is, you know, the, the decree, right? But what's the methodology that enabled this decision to come to place? It is in the same verse, actually, where Allah SWT says, May Allahu bikum. In another verse, he says, But here, which translates to Allah subhanahu wa does not want to put upon you any kind of difficulty, any kind of, um, you know, embarrass you in terms of the difficulty required, right? Allah subhanahu wa wants you to, to take the easy way, in other words, right? And so that is called a methodology, an understanding in Islam. The Prophet Ali Sallallahu is reported to have said to his Sahaba, Yassiru wa la tu'assiru wa bashiru wa la tunafiru. What does that mean? It's an attitude, right? Which means make things easy, don't make it difficult. Don't make things difficult for people, right? Bashiru, yassiru wa la tu'assiru. Make things easy, not difficult, right? Wa bashiru wa la tunafiru. Which means cheer people up, give people good news, right? Glad tidings as they say, right? Not sad news, right? Don't repulse people away from Islam and from the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and from loving Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So, yassiru wa la tu'assiru wa wa la tunafiru. Some scholars say that this hadith was actually revealed as advice given to two people, two sahaba that were going to be sent to Yemen to invite the people of Yemen to Islam. And so the Prophet tells them, you know, yassiru wa la tu'assiru wa wa la tunafiru. You know, how do you perform da'wah? How do you invite people to Islam? How do you talk to people about Islam? You make things easy for them. You don't show... Islam as, you know, a set of rigid rules that are very difficult and you make things easy in terms of also you give them glad tidings and good news that if you become Muslim, you're rewarded tremendously. You know, routine acts that you would do that you would not get rewarded for, you would find it on your scale of good deeds if you do them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? What, what an awesome news and glad tidings is that, right? Don't repulse people away and, and by kind of, you know, focusing on the negative. And so it's an attitude. And it's, it's interesting because uh, Father Soleimani comments on this a little bit and he says an interesting speaker, by the way, I encourage you to kind of check him out. He says, he lives in the UK, and he says that, you know, it's an attitude of even giving fatwa. And so, and also, by the way, Sheikh Yusuf al-Qaradawi comments on this a little bit. He, and Sheikh Yasser Qadi, they use the same comment, right? They say that basically um, to say something is haram is actually easy. And, you know, many people perhaps can do it. But to say that something is halal and permissible, that's what requires true fiqh and true knowledge and true understanding of Islam, right? And so basically the idea here is that we, you know, the attitude of somebody that is looking at Islam should be that everything is halal with a few exceptions, right? That is haram. Everything is permissible except for a few things that are impermissible, right? That are, um, need to be governed by certain limits and certain limitations, right? And those few things are a few. Right, so haram is not everything; it is the very little, very few. The general rule is that everything else is halal, and this is what scholars actually consider to be a general rule. Al aslu al which means the original rule of things is that it's halal unless there is scripture that says that it's haram. Right, so if there's a hadith, sahih hadith, and or a verse in the Quran that says that something is haram, that's when it becomes haram. Right, otherwise it is halal by nature. That's a very different attitude than taking the opposite attitude, whereas where you'd say haram, like everything is haram, man, until you know find something that says it's halal. If there's a verse that says it's halal or a sahih hadith that says it's halal, then it's halal. Otherwise, it's haram. Everything is haram, man, right? Except when you have an exception, and that's a very different attitude, right? And, and, and unfortunately, there are some scholars that take that attitude, but it's not the majority of scholars. Right? It's not the majority of scholars. All right, we have a question. 
Makabul, go ahead. Um, Assalamualaikum. Uh, quick question. Does uh, Hassan have his card as well or does it just have to be uh, Sahih? Yes, a good question. So a Hassan hadith is kind of considered mediocre in terms of its authenticity. So scholars say it depends. It depends on a few things. If the Hassan hadith kind of comes up with something that is completely unique and not mentioned in any Sahih hadith and not mentioned at all in the Quran, right? Then they say it becomes questionable. Then they need to kind of support that hadith and give it more authenticity. How do, we do, how do they do that? They do that actually by supporting it and saying, you know what? There is one chain of narration that is considered mediocre in its authenticity. But then there are many others that are weak in their authenticity, but say the same thing. Then that means that hadith is supported, right? It's not just on its own, one hadith on its own that is Hassan without any support, right? But that is also an issue of contention among scholars. Some say Hassan hadith can be considered when it comes to halal haram, even if it says something that is unique, not mentioned in the Quran, not mentioned in the Sahih hadith. But that is, I think, alam, minority of scholars that say that. Majority say that Hassan hadith is similar to the weak hadith, and requires an extra level of support if we were to take anything that is not there in the Sahih and in the Quran. Well, good question. Uh, there's a question from Hussein. Um, he's he's asking, do you use dust or soil for tayammum? Oh, that's a good question. And so um, it's another topic entirely. But um, the I think Adam, the idea here is that it needs to be dry and not wet, right? That needs to be dry. So in this case, we're talking about dust, right? Dust, sand. Um, some say even you can, you know, rely on uh, a rock, right? Um, but not soil that, you know, would be wet. But then there are exceptions to this even because there's situations where you only have that, right? Then what do you do in that case, right? So it is not something that is actually kind of concrete and set, what we call qatai. There are kind of differences of opinion about it. And, and that difference of opinion, by the way, allows for mercy, right? Allows for avenues to kind of explore when, when you are in a situation and you are put in a situation that there are no other uh, rulings out there or there are other rulings out there that you can take that will be easier for you. Follow on. Um, there's another question by Aya. She's asking, you mentioned that one can perform Hajj on behalf of someone who physically cannot. Can one do the same for those who are financially unable to do so? And that's a good question. And um, it actually depends on the situation. So if they're financially unable to do so because they are your, because by the way, the hadith says parents, it doesn't say everybody, but there, but there, and, and bear with me, there are scholars that say it's okay to do it for anybody, right? To the extent that there's actually a job um, that used to be, I mean, probably now they're on vacation, but <laughs> the job that used to be in Mecca, where you can actually hire somebody to perform Hajj on your behalf, right? You're, you're unable to go. You simply pay the person, you, you wire transfer the money, and that person whom you do not know performs Hajj on your behalf, right? And so that exists today, and some scholars say it's fine. And so there are, there's room, right, for difference of opinion when it comes to that. If somebody is financially unable to, can someone else perform Hajj on their behalf? Or is it better to give them the money and have them go themselves? Right, there's difference of opinion about that. Um, but Allah Alam, I think the majority opinion here is that if somebody is physically able to go, but financially unable to go, then um, and but they have children that are financially able, then the children it's better that the children give the father the money to go, right? Instead of going themselves on behalf of their parents. Allah. But again, that's there's room for interpretation there as well. 
All right, let's go back, inshallah, and then we'll open the floor again for questions. And so we were talking about legislation and methodology. Why is that? Why is there a difference between the two? It's because the Quran says so. And why am I talking about that? What's the point? It's because really what we will find in Surah Al-Kahf is um, some methodologies, some ways of going about things. Basically, how to live our lives, right? How to live our lives. Not necessarily a code of law. You won't find a code of law in Surah Al-Kahf. Right? You won't find do's and don'ts. Right? You will find a general guidance and you will find methodologies and concepts and principles. And of course, aqidah, things related to our beliefs and how we should believe and what we should believe in, all that will be in uh, Surah Al-Kahf. By the way, the madahib differ. Um, many scholars say that the differences between the madahib is actually in methodology, but not necessarily in verdict, not necessarily in decree, meaning that you know, Shafi'iyah and Malikiyah and Hanafiyah and Hanabila, they differ, um, but they mostly differ. They do have different verdicts from time to time, different decrees from time to time, but they differ mostly in methodology, how they come about their decision. The decision typically is in line with the other method, right? Typically, um, there are exceptions, but um, the methodology is what's different. As an example, um, for example, in some method, in some schools of thought, they say that you know one of our sources to come up with a ruling is Amalu Ahlil Medina, which means what did the people of Medina do? Because these are the people that kind of lived around the Prophet, right? In Medina, that's where he lived in the legislation portion of his life. And so even after he passed away, they would you know be the closest to him and the closest to pass on the different rulings of things and how they live their lives in accordance to the Prophet. And so that is one uh, madhab that actually considers Amal al Medina. Another madhab says, no, what, what Amal al Medina, man? We don't have anything in the Quran or in the Hadith that says anything that is special about Amal al Medina, right? And so that, that is not, you know, one methodology for us. So madhab differ when it comes to methodology. But in the end, do they really differ in matters of decree and verdicts and what they come up with? They do somewhat, but not major differences, right? Very minor differences in the branches. And the Prophet has said himself, differences of opinion in my ummah is a source of mercy. It should not be a source of fighting or contention or, you know, arrogance or condescension or my madhab is better than your madhab or I will only marry from my madhab and not from your madhab, right? It kind of has fallen like that, by the way, in history, unfortunately. And that is pretty much tribalism, right? Tribalism and just, you know, with a different, a different tribal name, right? But the tribe name became the madhab as opposed to the family name or the ethnicity, right? Unfortunately, and that happened in history. And the Prophet, an interesting story that we mentioned in Sirah, that I never tire of mentioning, where the Sahaba were about to fight with each other. Imagine that. The companions of the Prophet are about to fight against each other. Who are they? The Muhajireen and the Ansar, right? So it happens to be that one young man from the Muhajirah, from the, from the migrants that is originally from Mecca but now lives in Medina, right, came to a well. And then a, a young man from the Ansar, the original inhabitants of Medina came to that same well and they had a fight, right? It's not clear what they fought over exactly. Did they fight over who goes first or did they hurt each other's feelings? We don't know. But basically what they did was each one of them called their people, right? The Muhajir, the migrants said, Ya Muhajira, oh migrants, come support me. And the Ansari said, Ya Ansar, come support me, right? And people gathered around them. And then the Prophet his face turned red out of anger. One of the few times in history that his face turns red out of anger. And he says, Is it by the call of the days of ignorance that you are calling? This call, 
where you call your tribe to come support you no matter what, regardless of what the truth is. They just support you because you know you're you're part of their clan. You're you're from the same group. It doesn't matter what the truth is. It doesn't matter what what is right, what is just, what is fair. All of that is set aside for the favor of you know being um, supported by your own people. That is da'wah jahiliya. That is a call from the days of ignorance. And then he says something interesting. He says da'wah fa'innaha muntina. He says let go of it for it is muntina. Muntina does not mean rotten, right? It's translated often as rotten, but rotten is actually netina. So if you wanted to say rotten, it's a rotten call, right? He could have said it is netina, but he didn't say that. He said muntina. And then what's the difference between the muntina and netina? The difference is muntina causes rot, right? It, it, in itself, it's rotten, but also causes rot, right? It's not just rotten and that's it, right? Like, you know, a rotten apple. No, it actually causes rot. Like if you had a rotten apple in a basket of apples, it, it doesn't just, the rot doesn't just stay with that one apple, right? And so it causes rot, muntina. So that call for tribalism, unfortunately, causes rot and causes, uh, and what does that mean? It's a figurative speech, right? It's not literally, they're not going to literally rot right then and there, but they're figuratively meaning that relationships will, will, will suffer and the whole community will suffer and the whole ummah will suffer, which we see till today, subhanAllah. In the Muslim world, many parts of the Muslim world where tribalism and racism has festered and grew and caused so many relationships to be, um, you know, suffering and, and, and so much pain to so many people, subhanAllah. And that is something that we should definitely fight at all times and stand against. All right. What are concepts mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf? Um, Surah Al-Kahf has concepts. One is how the Muslim community should act in weakness, right? In dialogue, when it has dialogue with different people and in strength, right? So the Muslim community, how should it behave when it is weak and when it is strong and when it is in dialogue with different people? That's in Surah Al-Kahf. Objective thinking. What does it mean to think objectively about matters? What does it mean to kind of refer to the evidence? What does it mean to put your egos and feelings and emotions aside to think, you know, realistically and logically about things, right? Spreading hope regardless of the pain, regardless of the pain, spreading hope and optimism. Problem handling, dealing with problems and facing them head on and, and facing these challenges, right? That's in Sultika. Um, to kind of ignore or set aside or not really pay too much attention to details, right? To not look into the details unless these details will yield some kind of fruit or beneficial in some way, right? But if it's like, you know, a detail that is not really useful and not really fruitful and won't, you know, like it doesn't matter, then why really focus on it too much, right? And so that's in Sulika. To aim for greatness and not to settle for that which is good. Don't just settle to be good, but settle or aim to be great. Never settle, right? Aim to be great. And that is in Surah The idea of cause and effect, right? That everything has a cause, everything has an effect. And so that's also in Surah The ideas of management and divine management and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala manages this world and how we can learn lessons of management when it comes to our homes, our schools, our lives, our, our you know work, etc how to cooperate with people that we may disagree with, right? How to learn from each other, how to enrich each other's experience, how to educate each other, how to help each other out to further each other, right? And have a win-win situation. All of that is in Sotika. Crises management, how to deal with different crises and, and challenges and problems, right? How to manage that. How to turn your practice, right? We can all perhaps say that we're practicing or trying to practice, inshallah. How to turn that to passion, Right to turn it to passion, and so um, how to turn 
somebody that you know perhaps um, you know is uh, finds you know salah you know pretty much is is comforted from salah to somebody that is comforted by salah right because the difference between comforted from salah to comforted by salah right and so um, and this is an interesting commentary and also by Father Suleiman he says that you know imagine somebody that is um, you know working but then looks at the watch and says oh oh maghrib is going to hit in uh, 10 minutes uh, i only have 10 minutes to pray us so he rushes prays us so he does do really fast prays us really fast and finishes and he's like i i caught it right i'm, I'm comfortable now right so that is somebody that's comforted from salah comforted from salah but how do you turn that to somebody that is comforted by salah and that is what the Prophet used to call Bilal, and he would tell Bilal, who was the Mu'addin, who would call for Salah, comfort us with it, O Bilal. Right? And so, what does that mean? It means that the Prophet and the Sahaba, they would actually wait and, and be keen on when is Salah time. You'd be like, oh, you know, Asr is going to come in a few minutes. Um, oh, it's only it's 30 minutes. It's 20 minutes now. They can't wait for it to come, right? Because it's the source of comfort. 10 minutes. Oh, Salah's time came. Awesome. Now I can pray at last, right? That's the attitude of somebody that is passionate about their Salah, keen to attain their Salah, always, you know, kind of looking forward to the next Salah, right? Not somebody that kind of, you know, it's, it's just a check mark for them. So how does that happen, right? That is also something that we will learn from Sufi Kaf, inshallah, in this series. Where is guidance? How do we attain guidance? The guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Again, from Surah Al-Kah. How to perform da'wah, right? We talked about that a little bit. But how to um, spread the message, how to educate others, how to inform others, how to um, help others come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And how to learn ourselves about Islam and about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how to seek knowledge, right? That's all in Surah Al-Kah. And then there is how to prioritize and choose what's important to us in a plethora of choices, right? We live in this age where we have a zillion options, right? So um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Hassan Minhaj. Hassan Minhaj is this comedian, and he has a very interesting show called The Patriot Act. Although, fair warning, he does swear sometimes. But um, in that show, he sometimes um, says that one of the interesting things about Netflix, and the show is on Netflix, but it's also on YouTube, he says that, you know, you kind of can spend hours browsing through Netflix Right, and in the end, you don't watch anything. Why? Because there's so many choices, and you just you're spending so much time in the browsing, and in the end, you don't get to actually watch anything because you didn't invest into anything. A very similar uh, situation is when you first go to, um, say, a coffee shop that has a lot of different types of coffees with different flavors and different toppings and different sizes and what have you. So many choices that you can, if you you know, if you're going there for the first time, you could really be confused and not know what to choose, what to try, what to have, and you'll spend a lot of time looking at the menu, right? And so, how do you prioritize? What do you choose, right? Based on what, right? And why? And when? And how? That is something we'll learn, inshallah, Sultan. Surah Al-Kahf, or the chapter of the cave, is titled The Cave because it has the story of the youth of the cave, which we'll talk about next time, inshallah. But basically, we are doing this wine because we, um, or why are we, why is it that we're reflecting on the surah and on this story? Because it has uh, a lot of lessons that we will deduce and apply, inshallah, in our lives. But why is it called the cave, the chapter? So one scholar kind of commented and he said that the reason why that it's called the chapter of the cave, because just like you need shelter, right? Sometimes when you are outside, say it's snowing or raining heavily, you need shelter, right? Likewise, 
when we go through hardships in life and suffer through life and face different pains and griefs and, and, and different tribulations, we need shelter. That's what the chapter of the cave does. It provides that shelter, right? Just as it provided to the youth of the cave, right? Likewise, the whole chapter, the whole surah provides that shelter, enables us to go into the shelter and, and educate ourselves and strengthen ourselves and then come out much stronger, inshallah. Um, we'll open the floor for comments and questions, inshallah, before we continue for a few more minutes. Yes, Batu? Um, since you mentioned about math, math hubs, um, I just have a question, like, do you have any book recommendations or like, what is the best way to learn about other math hubs? Oh, that's a good question. So there are some books, um, unfortunately I haven't come across English, English books, but I'll, I'll definitely look it up. Uh, and see if there are English sources, but there are many books in Arabic that uh, compare. They're called al-fiqh al-muqaran, right? To compare the different uh, fiqh or different madhahib, different schools of thought, um, and so it kind of highlights the differences between primarily the four main schools of thought that have you know kind of existed in history, and compares between them, right? And but they're very heavy reads. They're not that easy, even in Arabic. They're very difficult to read. Um, a very simple book that kind of touches upon some of the differences, not all of them, but some of them, is a book that was written actually maybe a century ago, around a century ago, um, and it's called Fiqh Sunnah, right? Fiqh Sunnah, which means the, the fiqh or the jurisprudence or the legislation or the laws that are deduced from the sunnah of the Prophet, right? So that's the title of the book, Fiqh Sunnah. It's written by an author named Sayyid Sadiq. And I do believe it is translated. It's a very simple book, much easier to read and not as uh, archaic and difficult to read than, than any other books. But I will check it out, inshallah, and hopefully next time I'll have maybe some other English sources, inshallah. But that's a good question. Another way, by the way, to kind of learn about different madhahib is to actually um, attend sessions and lectures and, and series about those specific madhahib. If you're interested in the madhahib al-Hambali, for example, then try to find scholars that talk about madhahib al-Hambali. If you're interested in madhahib al-Maliki, then try to find scholars that talk about madhahib al-Maliki. Likewise, the Shafi'i, likewise, the Hanafi, right? You Definitely, there are scholars out there that kind of elaborate on these things, right? Yes, that's the name of Sunnah by Sayyid Sadaq. And, and it's, a, it's a simple read, easy read, and in it he kind of does just differentiate sometimes between the different madhahib when it comes to certain matters. All right, I wanted to... Um, okay, so finding comfort in Salah, that is a huge topic. That's why it is one of the concepts or topics addressed in the series, inshallah. So we will address that in detail. But in a nutshell, if you were to ask... How is it to attain comfort in salah, or khushu'a in salah, focus in salah, and presence of heart and mind in salah, right? All of these things combined, there are, there are a few recipes for that, right? And a few simple techniques too. One, for example, is turn off the phone, right? Make sure it doesn't buzz or light up and isn't right there beside you or in front of you. Make sure it's behind you, unseen to you as you're performing your salah, right? And that it's not, you know, there in front of you. Um, 
a sister once told me that she had uh, a cat and she had her cell phone on silence and everything, but it was in front of her. And then the cat came and kind of bumped into the cell phone and it was like an expensive phone and it dropped and she heard the screen kind of crack and all of that while she was in Salah. So her eyes bulged and she was like, what should I do? Uh, should I continue my Salah or exit from it for the phone? Like, is it valid to leave my Salah now or should I finish my Salah quick? Um, needless to say, her Salah was kind of... Um, disrupted to say the least um so point is that's that's one point number two is one interesting advice that was given to me earlier was to actually face a wall not have you know the whole room around you to kind of distract you so face kind of go closer to the wall face the wall that way you don't have too much distractions in your periphery vision right make sure that you pray in a place that is comfortable Right. I know that sometimes that's not attainable, especially if you're like if you're outside. But the better, the more, the more comfortable, the better it is to kind of not be distracted by the discomfort. Right. So you know you have a prayer mat that's comfortable, that's soft. Um, when you put your forehead on the ground, it doesn't hurt. Right. Sometimes it does, but you know try to find a place that where it doesn't hurt. These things help in terms of attaining comfort in salah and kind of presence of heart and mind. And then before all that is actually the advice of Abu Hamid al Ghazali, where he says very interestingly that you need to kind of attain a few meanings before salah. So before you enter in the salah, even before performing your salah, right? Try to attain a few uh, important meanings, right? I'm trying to find uh, my phone to share some of that, but I misplaced it. Uh, speaking of phones, right? Um, but I'll share that with you, inshallah, as we cover that topic in more detail, inshallah. But the idea here is that, you know, there are, certain things that we want to attain um, and, and bear in mind before entering salah. I found my phone. So those things actually are like the might of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the grandeur of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the magnificence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So bearing that in mind, focusing on that, thinking of that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the creator. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that gave you the vision, the eyesight, the hearing, right? Just, just for a few seconds, really, before salah, you think of these things, Right? Think of these things and focus on them and reflect on them. The power and might of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Think of your insignificance before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how small you are, right? In, in a world that is vast, that has billions of people on a planet that is one in many in a huge solar system, in a, in a galaxy that is in amongst many galaxies, right? And so the, the size of us, the real size of us, right? And so you think of that, right? So that's one and two. One is Allah, two is our own kind of insignificance and small size. And then there's the idea that, you know, you think of how you owe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so much for his many bounties upon us and how, how much, no matter what we do, we can never really do justice in terms of being thankful enough to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the many blessings that we have, right? So the Prophet was once asked, by his wife, I think it was Khadija that she asked him, you know, why is it that you pray so much so in the night and, and you know, until your feet are swollen? And these are extra prayers that you would do on Islam. And why is it that you're doing this? Isn't it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forgiven you all of your past sins and you're like, you know, you're, you're, you're a clean slate all the time. Why do you need to do these extra prayers? And then he says, Should I not be a thankful slave, right? Or servant to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So that is one thing that we need to kind of bear in mind that, you know, we, no matter how much we are thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can never do it justice how much we should be thankful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And so what do we do? That's number three. 
you focus on that a little bit, think about it a little bit, that you are really praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to thank Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to have gratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the many blessings they have. Right? And the list kind of goes on. That is just, you know, some things to think about before Islam. That's right, before prayer, right? Before performing the prayer. And yes, there's the technique that was the idea to make dua about the thing that is worrying you, right? Um, and maybe has taken your mind away. And that's an interesting technique that you can do even during salah. Like say in salah, you're praying, everything's fine and well, and you're thinking of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone, you're focusing on the verses that you're reciting. And then all of a sudden you think about the exam that's coming up, right? Or about graduation or about you know, life and all its challenges or job opportunities or, you know, livelihoods and all these things that are worldly that, you know, you have every right to think about these things, right? But the shaitan comes and tries to make you think about them specifically in salah to ruin your salah, right? Not for, not to gain any kind of advancement in your thoughts or anything. So you think about them, then the way to recover is to make dua to Allah to supplicate, to say, Ya Allah, enable me to pass with flying colors in my exam. Enable, you know, my job hunt to be successful and to land a good job. Enable me to, you know, exit from this hardship that I'm in successfully and peacefully, right? So, you know, that is a way to attain focus and to kind of come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the salah from whatever that is that distracted you. And yes, you can definitely close your eyes in salah, inshallah. I mean, scholars kind of say it's better not to close your eyes for long periods of time. And I think they're worried about uh, people dozing off. But uh, the idea here is that, you know, if you want to focus and remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you want to kind of, you know, erase the periphery distractions that may be in your periphery vision, then definitely, yeah, close your eyes for a little bit and then focus and come back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All right, so um, before we conclude briefly, I wanted to shed some light on the sources that we'll be using to cover the sessions, inshallah. Today was pretty much an intro into Surah Al-Kahf and highlighting the main concepts that we'll be addressing and talking about, inshallah. What we'll do over the next little while is dissect Surah Al-Kahf really word for word. We'll go really in depth, inshallah. The point is not to kind of just go quickly about it. We'll spend our time, in other words, take our sweet time, as they say, inshallah. Why? Because it's beneficial, inshallah, and it's useful. And every word is there for a reason, not placed haphazardly, right? Not placed haphazardly. And so my uh, one of my sources is a book called Safwat at Tafsir. It's this book right here. It's in Arabic, which means the elite of books of Tafsir. The elite of the books of Tafsir. Of tafsir, by the way, is the knowledge or the science of interpreting and explaining and understanding the Quran. And they've existed all throughout history ever since, um, you know, Abdullah ibn Abbas, one of the very early Sahaba, was known as one of the great Mufassirin, one of the great interpreters of the Quran, who would explain the Quran to people. And that science exists till today. And subhanAllah, it's, it's a deep and vast ocean that scholars till this day write books about. This book, the elite of uh, tafsirs um, has an interesting aspect to it is that it combines four main books of tafsir, right? Four main books of tafsir. Um, and so, yes, I'll write the title, inshallah. Four main books of tafsir. The, and they're the most prominent books of tafsir in history. So one is Ibn Kathir, very famous and very well known. Ibn Kathir's original tafsir actually was around 30 volumes, three zero volumes, right? The abridged version is three versions. And actually there's another abridged version that's like 12 volumes. So anyway, it's a huge book. That's tafsir Ibn Kathir. But he, in, in Sofat tafsir here is actually three volumes. He pretty much highlights Ibn Kathir when Ibn Kathir is, has a different opinion compared to the other uh, tafsir, right, to the other interpreters. Another interpretation or another tafsir that he has is Qurtubi. 
Al-Qurtubi is one of the Mufassirin that he uses, and he has them here. And then there's Al-Tabari, also another uh, book of Tafsir that's very known. And then the last one is Al-Jalalain. These are the four main books of Tafsir that are used by this author. His name is Muhammad Ali Sabuni, and he's a Syrian scholar that actually is alive, I found out, and, but he's very old. He's retired, he's, he's I think in his 90s, and he's still alive, subhanAllah. He wrote this book uh, many years ago, I think it was like in the 90s or maybe even in the 80s, and um, it highlights, and it, it is written in a very you know simple Arabic language, um, very easy to read, very easy to follow, um, with chapters, right, and subtitles and, and name headings and whatnot, so it's very well organized. And many books of Tafsir, especially the historic ones, are not like that, right? They, they require reformatting to be kind of reproduced in a way that we can read them today. We're not used to reading, you know, uh, the way, you know, people used to read back then. So that is one interesting source that I'm relying on. Um, another source that I'm relying on is actually the different translations. So I mentioned the clear Qur'an by Mustafa Khattab. That is one English translation of the Qur'an that we will rely on. And um, it's a very uh, good one, I think, because it's, it uses simple language, simple English, very easy to use, available online for free. And um, it is, uh, again, simple English, no archaic English, very easy to understand, simple to use. And um, so that's the main, you know, kind of... Uh, English translation of the Quran that we'll be relying on. We'll be comparing between different translations. So I'm using an app, a very interesting app, and it's called Quran. If you go to Quran.com, so Q-U-R-A-N.com, I'll share that link, inshallah. Um, you can actually kind of reach to, um, actually, if anybody would like to volunteer and write the names of the books and the sources, feel free to do so, inshallah. So, because it might be hard for me to type while I'm talking. But, uh, but yeah, so Quran.com, and you'll find an app there. And, and you can get that, that app. It's a very interesting app, very useful, because it allows you to kind of compare different translations. Um, so there's Yusuf Ali, very famous uh, Abdullah Yusuf Ali, who wrote a translation of the Qur'an. There is Muhsin Khan and Taqiyuddin Al-Hilali. They also wrote a translation of the Qur'an. There is what is called Sahih International. That's another English translation of the Qur'an. Mermaduk um, Piktal, another translator of the Qur'an. Right. So these are all different translations of the Qur'an that we will... In touch upon and highlight the differences when there are differences between the translations. Right? Another translation, unfortunately, that does not exist in this app, two other translations actually. One is Al Maududi. So Al Maududi wrote, Al Maududi is an interesting scholar from Pakistan, and he wrote a book called Tafheen al Quran, which means understanding the Quran, and he wrote it in Urdu, but it was translated into English. So we'll be relying on the translation of Tafheen al Quran. Right, and the website is englishtafsir.com. So that's English and then T A F S I R.com. Right, so that's the website that has a Maududi's translation, and we'll reflect on that a little bit because he has beautiful intros to surahs. So we'll touch upon his intro to Surah Al Kahf as well, inshallah, next time. And then another interesting translation of the Quran, which I think is one of the best ones, is one that is written uh, with poetry. Right, so in English, it's written in English, and but with, with with a poetic sense, right? And it's written by an author named Muhammad Asad. Muhammad Asad is originally, or was originally, from Austria, and he converted to Islam. He named himself Muhammad Asad. He lived in Saudi Arabia for some time, lived in Pakistan as well, which is interesting. And he wrote a few books about Islam, included including the translation of the Quran, right, which is called the Message of the Quran the message of the Quran. And so it's an interesting translation that we'll kind of highlight a little bit and touch upon his translation as well. So these are all different translations that we will try to use 
to come up with a holistic and deeper understanding of the Quran, inshallah. Um, there are two other books in Arabic that I will rely on and two scholars that I will rely on. One is a book called Fi Dilal al-Qur'an by Sayyid Qutb, which is reflections on, on the Qur'an, right? Jazakallah khair, Muhammad and everybody else for sharing the names of the books. So Fi Dilal al-Qur'an, In the Shade of the Qur'an. It also is translated, um, but it's originally written in Arabic. And it, what it is is really just reflections on the Qur'an, but they, they, he goes deep, you know, Sayyid Qutb, inshallah. And then there is a Sharawi, right? Muhammad Mutwali Sharawi, who wrote uh, and who has a very famous uh, TV series of Tafsir al Quran, um, very famous for you know Arabic speaking audiences that may have lived in like the 80s and the 90s. They would know him, everybody would know him, he was very famous back then. And so we're relying on, on his uh, Tafsir as well, inshallah, and you know, deducing meanings from there, inshallah. So these are the sources that I would rely on. Um, you might think that there are a lot. But um, they're actually not that many. And like I said, the differences that they have are not that many. Alhamdulillah. Uh, and this is Omar, my three-year-old, who always loves to come and barge in when I'm here. Say salam alaikum. Alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa And so um, those are the sources that we rely on, inshallah, and reflect upon the verses from Surah Al-Kaf and touch upon it. And, and so that's what we'll be doing, bimillah. Any questions or comments at this point? Sheikh, there was a question in the comments um, a little bit earlier by Zara. She was asking, what is the proper Islamic etiquette of making up a making up for a mistake made in Salah? All right, very good question, Mashallah. So in Salah, there are um, what is called arkan or pillars. And then there are things that are called sunnah. What a sunnah in salah is, it, the salah itself is a fa'id, is an obligation, but there are things that are considered sunnah in salah, meaning that the Prophet did them and um, may not necessarily have stressed on them. Like, like if you miss in the sunnah uh, or if you don't do the sunnah, then it's kind of okay, right? It's not, it doesn't nullify the salah, right? But then there are things that are considered to be pillars. And if you miss a pillar, then the salah is not accepted. Or if you miss, especially if it's a, a pillar for the whole salah, right? Um, and so it depends on what is it that you missed. So, for example, um, when somebody forgets, they miss something in the salah because they forgot. That means they know they forgot, right? So let's say, for example, I say a fatiha, and then I say Allahu Akbar, and I make you know ruku'a right away without reciting any Quran after. And this is the first turakat only, right? So let's say I do that. I did it because I forgot, right? Not because I didn't want to or because I was in a hurry or because, you know, oh, it's a sunnah, I don't have to do it, right? It actually is a sunnah. So if you don't do it, it's okay. It doesn't nullify your salah, right? But you forgot. And because you forgot and because I forgot and, and didn't do it because I forgot, then I need to do what is called sajdat as or sajdat as the two sujuds for forgetfulness. And that's done at the end of salah, right? Typically before you say, salam alaikum, salam alaikum, right? At the very end, after you've done the last tahiyat, right? You said, Majid, you're done. Then you say, you make the two sujuds of, of sahwa, of forgetfulness, right? But that is for you missing a sunnah. But let's say, I, I say, Allahu Akbar, I started my rakah, and I forgot to say al-Fatiha. And I recited Quran, I said, you know, Qul Allahu Ahad, right? 
And then it continued my salat. But then by like the third rakah, I remembered, oh, in, in, in rakah number one, I was so much in a hurry and I was not really paying attention. I missed reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. Now what happens is your salat is not nullified but because you're still in the salat. But that rakah is nullified because you missed a pillar. Fatiha is a pillar. You missed a pillar, and as such, that rakah is nullified. So now you're in the third rakah, and it's a, let's say it's a four rakah salat. So you continue the four rakah, the fourth rakah, but then you do one more rakah as if you did not even pray that first rakah that you didn't pray, didn't read fatiha in. Right? See what I mean? So it really depends. Then do you do sajid al Yes, you do sajid al sah with the two sajid of sah. We do them even then. Right? So that's what pretty much, um, you know, how scholars handle things, right? So it's important to kind of identify what are the pillars and what are the things that are, you know, sunan that if you miss, you you don't have to repeat the rakah, right? One pillar, for example, that's very important that some people actually miss, you know, amazingly. Um, you know, let's say a salah started in a jama'ah. I miss those days. Let's say a jama'ah started and you enter the masjid and you see the jama'ah has started and they they made ruku'ah. Right. So typically when, when they make rakah, you want to hurry and join that salah. Why? So that your rakah is counted. Right. And so you run and you join the salah, but you didn't do takbirat al-ihram. You, you jumped in, you kind of went and made the rakah right away. Right. Uh, and you missed what is called takbirat al-ihram, which is the first takbirah, which is the first Allahu Akbar at the beginning of the salah. You didn't say Allahu Akbar and then make sujood. You, you went, you did it once, you know, Allahu Akbar while doing the, the, the rakah or doing the sujood, or whatever. That nullifies the whole salah, right? Because takbir al-ihram is a pillar for the whole salah. You can't make it up. You, you, you missed your chance, right? So that's an important pillar to kind of bear in mind and know, right? And then there are other pillars, like I said, that uh, are important to recognize, and there are things that are considered sunan, that if you miss, it doesn't nullify the salah, it doesn't nullify the rakah, but you might, you have to do, you know, you're encouraged to do rakatay, uh, you know, sorry, sajdatay sal at the end, the two sajdud sal in the end. I hope that answers that question. Um, after the salam, can you do sajdatay sal with the two sajdud sal? The answer is um, yes, you can if you had forgotten to do them before salam. Actually, some scholars say it's better to do them after salam. Right, especially if you're leading people, like if you're the imam and other people are praying behind you, so that you don't confuse them. Right? Some people say it's better to do them after, um, so it's okay to do them after. Right? That, oh, again, one of those places where there is some room for differences of opinion. Right? All right. So some uh, somebody shared a nice resource, mashallah. Um, and oh, to go over the sunnah and, and the pillars, that would probably take another day. So let's uh, do that next time, inshallah, um, if Allah permits and prolongs our lives until then. Um, but definitely we can do that, inshallah. I mean, if you remember, if you join us and remember uh, early on, we can we can do that, inshallah, because it will take some time to kind of cover each and every one of the sunnah and, and, uh, and the pillars. Um, but I mentioned a few, right? So Fatiha, for example, Takbir al-Ihram is one of them. Like these two are like the key ones. Takbir al-Ihram, the first Takbirah is... Uh, the the pillar for the actual salah itself. All right, there's oh yeah, the resource marvelous stories from the Quran. So those that you know, if uh, if somebody you know kind of wants to uh, check this out, it's it's a good resource shared on the chat, inshallah. So jazakallah khair, uh, Abida for sharing that resource, inshallah. 
All right, we will um, conclude here, inshallah. I hope this was beneficial. Uh, if you have parting questions, uh, oh, you want to see Omar again? No, I, I'm happy he's not here. So because he doesn't, he always comes to me only when I'm here on on a on a live conversation or live uh, session. All right. So the uh, next time, bismillah, we will. Um, oh, mashallah. So there you go. Fiqh of Salah is on uh, Instagram Live, mashallah, going on right now. Sister Malika. No, I think he does them at 4 p.m. and he alternates with, um, yeah, Tuesday and Thursdays. I think okay. it was on the Faith uh, Community Telegram group. Okay, awesome, awesome. So yeah, so you know, check that out, inshallah. Um, the fiqh of salah and and hanbali fiqh and you know, lots of lessons available online, inshallah. Sheikh Hasib does an awesome job of explaining all of that. So definitely a very good resource. Is Malika for sharing. There's a question about missing uh, the two rakat of sajda. Like you forgot something in salah, you know that you forgot something in salah, and then at the end of salah you forgot. <laughs> Walk downstairs or something. Jeez, she keeps yelling. What? Who's yelling? Me? I didn't yell. Alhamdulillah. All right. So somebody else probably. So the uh, the if you miss the rakatain of of sujood, you can do them after salah, um, and it's okay even if you don't do them. Like you know, there's actually hadith that says that you know the two rakat, two sorry sujoods at the end of salah they make up for you know things that are forgotten in the salah. But let's say you didn't make them up, then make istighfar, inshallah. Try to, if it's something, like I said, if it's a pillar you missed, then you probably have to repeat your salah. If you finish the salah and you realize, oh, I only prayed uh, without the fatiha, or I didn't do the lihram, or, you know, other pillars like that, then it might be better to repeat the salah. If it's a pillar. If it's a salah, you could just say istighfar and ask Allah SWT for forgiveness and ask Allah SWT to accept the salah and, and move on kind of thing, right? All right. Jazakumullah khairan. Any final thoughts, comments, reflections, questions? All right, there's a question here um, that we'll answer. It is about whether you're doubtful that you've missed a part of the salah. Err on the side of caution. Salah is very important. And if you doubt that you missed, say, for example, you're in the third rakah, and then you're like, oops, is this the third or the fourth? I forgot. Then err on the side of caution, right? So err on the side that, oh, wait, you know what? I, I'm I'm not sure if this is the third or the fourth rakah. If I considered it the fourth and I finished, then I I would have missed the rakah, right? Um, so it's better to err on the side of caution, even if it lend, even if it ends up you doing an extra rakah, right? But you don't know that you're not sure about that, right? So it's better to err on the side of caution. Hold on, because salah is important, right? The whole point really is to consider salah an important an important thing. Oh yeah, so Faith Essentials on Al-Maghrib is actually free right now. Um, and so, mashallah, that's awesome. And there's actually a course on Salah that you can check out. It has like a lot of details there, mashallah. And, you know, like I said, as we go along with Surah Al-Kath, we'll touch upon a few things here and there, mashallah, that will be beneficial and that we can always answer questions whenever we get the opportunity to do so, mashallah. So... Um, the saying that says that doubt does not cause certainty to go away is not typically applied by scholars when it comes to um, your salah and the pillars of salah. It's typically applied when it comes to your wudu, right? So if you are not sure that you broke your wudu, in other words, you doubt it, that's when you don't err on the side of caution. You err on the side of you have your wudu, right? That's when you're sure that you have wudu, 
right? So say you have wudu and you're praying and then you're like, oh, um, did I go to the washroom before praying? Did I break my wudu? Right? Like you're not sure. You, you, you know, shaitan kind of puts these thoughts in your head to plant doubt and make you not focus on salah. Then you dismiss them. You dismiss them and say, you know what? I'm sure that I had I made wudu. I remember going to the washroom and making wudu and, and you know, performing wudu. And, uh, but I don't remember going to the washroom or not. So I'm not sure about it. So what I'm sure about is what I'll adopt here. Right, so that's that's a bit different. So I said that that applies there, but not necessarily when it comes to rakat in salah or missing a pillar in salah. Allah. All right. Any other thoughts or comments? So, good question. Does the story of the youth of the cave have more importance in Surah Al-Kahf compared to other surahs? Well, Alam, no. I mean, we don't have any narration that says this, like a hadith that says this or anything like that. Um, so, you know, there's um, every surah has its name taken from a word in in the surah itself, typically. Um, not always, by the way, but typically. And so, um, it must not necessarily means that the the story of the youth of the cave is the most important story in in that chapter, um, but it is mentioned in that chapter. And then, and like I said, the comment that I shared about the name of the surah is that this surah is more than just the uh, you know more than just the 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 story of the youth of the cave. It is a cave in and of itself. It is a venue for us to shelter ourselves from pain and suffering and hardship. It is a place for us to find strength and ability and, and knowledge and, and strengthen ourselves in our you know, challenges, the, the challenges that we face and how we face challenges and our struggles against these challenges, right? So Surah Al-Kahf is a cave in and of itself, right? And however, it does have the story of the youth of the cave, right? Which is very... Uh, which has a lot of you know, kind of allegories and, and figurative uh, lessons and symbolism to it too as well that we'll touch upon when we come to inshallah. All right, a question about making up for past salawat that you may have missed to Kabir al-Ihram for without knowing. Um, so if you didn't know, then there is um, two, two opinions on that. There's an opinion that says you are, inshallah, forgiven for what you don't know as long as you are actually on the path of striving to know, right? Um, but then there's an opinion that says, that, you know, ignorance is not an excuse. Not knowing is not really a valid excuse. The onus is on each and every one of us to actually know and to, to reflect and study, especially on things that are important. So two opinions exist, right? I, I personally lean towards a balanced approach that it depends on, um, you know, how often you've been doing this, right? If it's very often, then maybe stop and ask Allah SWT for forgiveness and ask Allah SWT to accept your, your soloet. But what about missed salawat? Like when you miss salah entirely, like say you haven't prayed in ages or, you know, for years and years. And then there's also a difference of opinion about that. Should you make it up? Many scholars say, yes, you should. Some say you don't have to. So there is a difference of opinion about that as well. The names of the surahs in the Quran came about. How did that happen? Well, um, they came about by by uh, revelation. Most scholars agree on this. Some don't, but most do, right? So most scholars agree that the name of the surah and the verses that are collected in the surah is not a matter of ijtihad, meaning it's not something the companions did after the Prophet passed away. It was something the Prophet did in his lifetime 
with Jibreel alayhi salam, the angel Jibreel, with instructions and guidance from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? So scholars, most scholars believe this, right? And then there is the opinion that, you know, again, most scholars believe that after the passing of the Prophet, the Sahaba collected these surahs in the form of the book. That one collection did not exist at the time of the Prophet right? It existed in the memories of people, it existed in the minds of people, it existed in different forms, different collections here and there, right? But not uh, in one collection. And so that collection happened at the time of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, right? And um, actually there's a good video about that, maybe I'll share it with you guys inshallah. Um, and so if you give me a second, I'll share that with you. That talks about how the Quran was kind of collected and so the way the Qur'an was collected is actually an interesting story. And one that unfortunately we, we don't know, we don't really focus on, unfortunately, right? Um, give me one second. And this will be... Uh... Oh yeah, Faith Telegram. So Zaheen, can you share the Faith Telegram group, inshallah, for the community? That is something that uh, some people are asking about, inshallah. Oh, I didn't know the, that the session is being recorded. Are you recording, Zaheen? Oh, yeah, I think it was auto-record auto when it started. Okay, so some people are asking if it's accessible. Um, yeah, we can definitely um, go through it and make it accessible. But um, just to follow up on the sister's request, here is the link for the Telegram group. It is also, I believe, um, Adil can correct me, but I believe it was on our Instagram bio as well, unless that's been changed, Adil. But um, yeah, there's that's the link in case anyone hasn't joined us on Telegram. Okay, awesome. Yes, so Telegram is this app that's like WhatsApp, and uh, but it's it has more privacy, it has much more features. Um, not everybody kind of sees your number and everything, and so that is one of the things that made us kind of choose Telegram to use. And uh, WhatsApp is also kind of uh, cumbersome in, in terms of the many different groups that we're already on. So, yeah, so this is a group for the community, for the faith community, inshallah. Welcome to join it, inshallah. Rabbi Alameen. And um, please remember Zaheen and his family and all the volunteers, Adil and all the others, Malika, and all of them, they're doing an excellent job, inshallah, keeping faith up and running. Um, please remember me as well and my family and your du'a inshallah I mean, anything good I said is from Allah subhanahu alone any mistakes are my own I ask you to forgive me, forgive me for them inshallah and hopefully we see each other on Monday at Faith inshallah online here again on Zoom and then continuously we will reflect on Surah Al-Kahf on Friday's if Allah prolongs our lives till then Sheikh um, I think Faraz might have a question to ask alright Faraz last question go ahead um so uh, the question is, and I'm asking for a friend, uh, how was the Qur'an like, you know how there's like Surah, surah 1, Al-Fatiha uh, and Al-Baqarah, how is that structure uh, made? Like why is it that Surah Al-Nas is like the final Surah? 
Yeah, so the order of the of the surahs, that is what scholars agree is ijtihadi, meaning that the sahaba, the companions, they endeavored, they kind of had a council after the passing away of the Prophet, and they said, okay, how do we order the Qur'an? Should we order them this way, that way? And they had that discussion, and then they decided to order it the way that we have it today. Right, so that's the only ijtihadi part, the only part of the Qur'an that is done, you know, by the uh, efforts of the sahaba. The, the the order of the surahs, right? Why did they put it that way? So some scholars speculate um, it's because of basically based on length, right? So the and and some say it's it's a thematic uh, collection. Although if you kind of read the Quran, that's not really the case. There is no specific theme to every juz or right or anything like that. Um, it kind of weaves itself from Mecca to Madani to Mecca and you know surahs and whatnot. And so yeah, so that's uh, that's something that. Um, that is not agreed upon why or what what what's the wisdom behind this this order, um, but that most scholars say, like I said, it's um, an endeavor by the Sahaba. There are some, by the way, that say that this is even the order of the Quran was actually revealed to the Prophet Islam um, before his passing away. Right, so there's that opinion does exist as well. Sheikh, I just want to share one. Uh, a reminder for everyone as well, for those who joined us uh, later on, that uh, you will be uh, alongside the other speakers having a conference, inshallah, this Sunday. So perhaps you can just give us a quick update on that and just let, let the people know what it's about. Oh, okay. Yeah. So inshallah, on Sunday at 6 p.m. online, Faith Global will hold a conference. What does that mean? Because we have, alhamdulillah, I mean, different faith spaces opened in different cities in the world. We have in UK, in the US, um, and then more opening up, inshallah. And so we have a few chapters around the world, and all of them, all of the different facilitators, including myself, unfortunately, will be there online. <laughs> Um, joining in and sharing a few reflections, inshallah, we'll be talking about righteous people from the past that went through hardships and challenges and learn from them, inshallah. How did they, you know, kind of power through different difficulties, inshallah. So that really is the theme of, uh, of, the, of the online conference. And inshallah, it won't be that long, but it will be very beneficial and entertaining and, and uh, educational. So there, right. there you have it, guys. Inshallah, we'll see you on Sunday at 6 p.m. And then, of course, on Monday for our Practical Spiritual Series at 8 p.m. Um, Sheikh Ahmed, if you can please do the closing dua, inshallah. All right, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. Barakallahu fikum. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable this gathering to be a beautiful one. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable this gathering to be accepted on a scale of good deeds. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to enable us to exit with hearts renewed in our connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to strengthen our hearts, enable it to be steadfast on the path. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us, to shower us with his protection, to keep us healthy, to keep us strong, to keep us, um, inshallah, I mean, safe, um, despite all the different challenges that we face, especially nowadays in these trying times. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us patience with our families, with our friends, with our companions, with everyone that we know, inshallah, I mean, ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to um, purify our hearts, enable our hearts to be always pure for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, inshallah, enable us to benefit from the Quran, to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to place blessings in our time and to have us make use of our time as best as possible, especially now that we have a lot of free time. And we ask Allah to accept from each and every one of you, inshallah, for spending the time here tonight, inshallah. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs>
Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.